Alright, good morning. Um, thanks for being here and showing up today. Uh, and for those of you guys who are at home watching in your pajamas, you're dead to us. So, <laughs> just kidding. Um, so, I've known I was going to be speaking today for, uh, and next week, for about a week, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, so, I've been thinking about what it is that um, God's been wanting me to speak about, um, what he would desire for me to speak about. Uh, I originally was going to just do what I've been doing with the teens, which is still going through the book of John. Uh, so not too far off of what the last time when I talked up here. Um, but for whatever reason, I just felt like that wasn't quite where, where God was leading me. Um, so I bounced around some different ideas, um, went through some different passages in some different books, uh, and ultimately landed um, not where I thought God would have me land, but that's okay. Um, doesn't really matter what I think, I guess. Um, so if you have a Bible with you today, um, go ahead and open up to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and while you, while you turn there, well, let me give you a little bit of background uh, about this letter. Uh, the letters of, of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are referred to many times as the pastoral epistles, and they're called that because they contain a lot of information about the responsibility that pastors bear and leading and ministering to the people of God. First Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to a man named Timothy. And, and Timothy assisted Paul in a number of different ministry-related areas. And we know that because of places like 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 16, and, and there's more. Uh, as well, and and you can look that up on your own if that's something that's interesting to you. But um, but Paul, who was who was an apostle to the Gentiles, uh, he he's the author, and he and he authored thirteen letters in the New Testament, and, and he had placed Timothy in, in Ephesus to to counter or to act against the, this problem of false teachers. And Timothy is charged with, with leading this, this church to be faithful in a, number, in a number of areas, including godly living. Leading, leading people, leading, leading God's people, it's not an easy task, but it, but it is a, a glorious task worth giving one's life to. And, and the Apostle Paul wanted Timothy to be faithful to his calling to minister the gospel. I also want us to consider the context for Timothy and the, and the church of Ephesus during this time. Pro probably around the, the mid-60s of the first century A.D. So e Ephesus is this large, diverse, religious, religiously complex, and flourishing city, a, a lot like the town of Quartzsite, right? Again, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, uh, also, the temple of Artemis, um, who, who is in some way uh, 
associated with the Roman goddess Diana was, was located in Ephesus. And, and that had deep influence within the community. Um, and, and basically, there's a, there's a cult that's there that has a lot of different practices like magic and sorcery uh, and things of that nature. So, so all that to say, well, well, Timothy wasn't going out to minister to people who, who were raised in, in a Protestant Christian home, but, but quite the opposite. Ephesus had its own specific areas where, where it fell into sin and rebelled against God. But, but all that doesn't mean that, that Paul's letter has no relevance for us here today. So, so these challenges that Timothy was facing went deeper than, than just cultural context, too. So, some of the issues that Paul addresses within the church and, and in this letter of 1 Timothy are, are like instructing men and women about their God-given roles and conduct within the church gathering. Faithful elders and deacons needing to be identified and appointed. Widows needing to be cared for. And the desire and temptation to pursue wealth seem to be an issue in that congregation. And, I mean, we all face those same issues here now, right? Maybe not in this specific church, not all of those issues, but, but the Christian church worldwide faces these same issues, and, and we all face some of these same issues. The, the church of Ephesus was also facing this deadly issue of false teaching. And the Apostle Paul even names a few, a few of these people by name, Hymenaeus and Alexander, as two individuals who were excommunicated or, or removed from the church for, for rejecting faith and good conscience. This was not a good situation that Timothy was stepping into. And, well, for some reason, though, Christians, many believers today, well, they don't see a need to read or to study First Timothy because of the idea that it's meant just, just for pastors, just for elders, just for paid staff. And it certainly is important for, for church leadership, but that doesn't mean that the rest of you guys can just tune out. It doesn't mean that there, there isn't anything in here that's, that's not relevant to God's desire for your life. So, so if you're sitting here right now thinking, I, I know this book is important, but, but I'm not a pastor, and I don't, I don't plan to be, and I never will be, so I don't really need to pay attention, I'll, I'll perk up when, I, when we go to a book that's a little bit more relevant to me, well, if that's you this morning, well, well, I beg you to rethink your perspective on First Timothy. I mean, we talked about the questions Paul addressed already, but, but let me share with you again what he goes through in First Timothy. In chapter 1, he talks about how does the Old Testament laws apply to Christians today? Seems pretty relevant, right? Chapter 2, can women teach in the church Chapter 3, who, who's qualified to be an elder or a deacon? Chapter 4, how can I spot a false teacher? Chapter 5, which widows should the church support? Chapter 6, what should wealthy Christians do with their money? 
These are, these are topics that are relevant to, to every Christian. Anyone who professes Christ as their Lord and is a member of a local church, and yes, those two things should be tied together, well, they need to know what God has said about how the church is to function. Why? Well, well let, me, let me give you a verse from 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, But, this is Paul speaking, But it, if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to act in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. But why do we need to know this? Because it directs us on how we're to act in God's household. The church, the, the gathering as followers of Christ for worship. This book, this letter, gives us directives about how we are to act in the gathering of the church and as we spread out to proclaim His good word. So, if you haven't found First Timothy by now, come see me afterwards because you've had more than enough time and I'd like to shame you privately. So... And that's the last joke of the morning, so I promise. Um, okay, First Timothy chapter 1. Before we dive in, um, can, I, can I just pray for us this morning um, and ask, ask God to help us understand kind of as we go through this? I know, I know that I could use His help right now, so let me pray for us. Father God, thank You for just the opportunity that we have to, to gather in Your name. I pray that this time would be pleasing to you, that, that it would glorify you. I pray that, that your Holy Spirit would be here with us, that that your word would be spoken and not, not anything that I have to say, but only yours. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. First Timothy chapter 1. We'll start in verse 1. It says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. The, the beginning of 1 Timothy demands our attention, right? It, it demands it. Paul, an apostle... Many times we treat these greetings as if they're not really that important. Right? We, we, we just kind of toss them out, right? But that's not the case. That's not the case here. So, so what's Paul doing when he says, Paul, the apostle, he, he's giving us his credentials. He, he's giving us his credentials as an apostle, which means that we better listen. This is, this is shouting to us within the first few words, pay attention to this. This is important writing. This is authoritative writing that we're about to read. In Acts 1, 21 and 22, we read that in order to be one of the original 12 apostles, the individual had, had to be present during the earthly ministry of Jesus. That means from the time Jesus was baptized to his resurrection and ascension. And Jesus sent these men, eyewitnesses of his ministry, 
to take the gospel message to the ends of the earth. And, and, and every book of the New Testament was then written by either an apostle or, or a close associate of an apostle, which means that we should pay close attention because these words given to us come from a special representative of the king of the universe. But, but Paul wasn't with Jesus during his early ministry. He, he wasn't there to see the resurrected Lord before his ascension. But he did have an encounter with Jesus that was recorded in Acts chapter 9. This former prosecutor of the church was anointed by Jesus as the last of the, of the apostles. So the, so the first thing that should grab our attention when we start to read through 1 Timothy is, is that it was written by an apostle. And Paul pushes this point across to us about him being an apostle, an apostle when he says in verse 1 that his apostleship is the commandment of God, our Savior, and of, Je of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Paul wasn't elected into this apostleship by man. He was divinely appointed to be an authoritative representative of the resurrected Christ. And it's important also to note that Paul credits this appointment to both the Father and the Son, which makes it clear that Paul is assuming the deity of Jesus Christ. And this exalted view of the Son is made even more evident in verse 2, where we read that grace, mercy, and peace are, are given by God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I want to be clear that authority does not rest on the apostle or the man, but rather the authority is carried by Scripture. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. Peter says it, in this way, men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, Second Peter 1.21. In other words, men are not inerrant or without error, but God's Word is. Therefore, the reason that the church at Ephesus and, and the Quartzite Alliance Church and, and the Christian church all over the world needs to submit to this letter is because it was breathed out by God. And we could imagine that Timothy might, might have been a little shaken by the issues that he's facing in Ephesus, right? Along with the daily grind that comes with pastoral ministry, well, he's also dealing with false teachers who, who are trying to undermine God's word. In this way, well, First Timothy is timely, and that it was essential for Timothy because it, it dealt with issues that he was facing in that moment. Paul tells Timothy, Paul calls Timothy my true son in the faith. In Philippians, Paul said something that, that shows his affection towards Timothy. He says, but you know his proven character. He's, he's talking about Timothy. You know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father, Philippians 2.22. So we know that, that Paul and Timothy traveled together and that Paul thought of him highly and 
So then we have this personal letter here from Paul to his younger brother in Christ. And it's important for us to note that, that Paul's instructions are meant for a wider audience than just Timothy alone. In verse 1, Paul spoke as an apostle, meaning his words as recorded in Scripture bear the authority of God. The issues that arose in Ephesus are, are not confined to this one place and times. Sin continues as a plague against humanity ever since the fall in Genesis 3. So, so we could even make the claim that 1 Timothy is essential for, for every follower of Christ. All of us need to know what God has said about how, how we're to relate, relate to Him and to the others in the church. Another thing to note before we move on is that well, First Timothy is filled with hope. And we see this here in verse 1, when Paul refers to God, our Savior. We're reminded right off the bat that God is our Savior. We're reminded right off the bat that God is our Savior, but in the very next phrase, we get even more hope, more good news. Paul isn't only sent by, by God, our Savior, but also by Christ Jesus, our hope. Christ Jesus is our hope. And, and so, well, while 1 Timothy contains a number of, of exhortations and commands, that well, we need to remember that Paul gave his instructions in the context of the gospel. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Again, this is, this is one of those portions of the Bible that we tend to skim over, right? But what we need to stop and consider what is really being said here. It's not just a greeting. There are, there are layers here that we need to dive into and unpack. The, the closing of Paul's greeting is a reminder. Grace, mercy, and peace, these things are gifts from God. Moving on, verse 3. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men 
and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So you guys got all that, right? But Paul's, Paul's first instruction to, to the young pastor, Timothy, well, it's basically guard the gospel. And, and this is amazing. Consider, well, consider that the church in Ephesus is surrounded by paganism and immorality and idolatry. And because of all these pressures, well, Paul makes it a point to tell Timothy, first things first, keep people from teaching false doctrine. I mean, he makes that clear, right? Uh, address anything and everything that pulls people away from the gospel. If we don't have the gospel, we don't have anything. We, we oftentimes think of, of other things as more pressing, prayer, leadership, missions, materialism, caring about one another. And Paul, Paul's going to get to all of these things eventually. But he begins by telling Timothy to, to guard the gospel. So how do we, how do, we do that? Well, well, we do that by how we use God's Word. Which in this particular case concerns His law. In this text, well, Paul tells us how not to use God's law. How, how not to use God's Word. So, so what are those ways? Well, well, first, we must not add to the law's demands. In verse 4, Paul talks about the myths and genealogies taught by these false teachers. These false teachers are taking extra-biblical writing that, that includes stories or myths about Old Testament people, and they're using that to, to add into God's Word. In chapter 4, which we won't get to, but in chapter 4 you, you read that they were teaching that you shouldn't get married. You, you shouldn't get married and you need to abstain from eating various foods. In other words, they're putting rules and regulations on God's people that, that aren't found in God's Word. The second way in which we are not to use God's law we must not think that the law saves. These false teachers in Ephesus were teaching that, that obedience to the law, even some extra-biblical laws, well, they'll earn you favor with God. Does that sound familiar? I mean, that teaching is still going on today, right? Many times, false teachers don't just come out and say, that you need to earn you need to earn your way to heaven. Some do. But any time that you add anything to God's gracious work in, in the gospel, we're perverting it. The idea that certain acts, certain obedience to the rules will earn you favor with God is is counter to what the Bible teaches. So, so all that begs the question, well, well then how do we use God's law? We, we see 
we see through this the wrong ways of using God's law. So, so how should it be used? There are many places in scriptures where, where we can find God's law, but, but we're not talking about dietary restriction or, or regulations for making sacrifices. These kinds of laws are, are no longer binding on Christians because the law given through Moses, through, through the Old Testament, through the Old Covenant, have been set aside with Christ's coming. There, there are certainly, though, moral laws that are transcendent and have application to God's people in, in every age, such as do not murder. But, but let me give you three uses for, for God's moral law. And we don't have time to go deep into them, but, but, but here they are. Number one, the law is intended, on one hand, to show God's restraint of sin. The law is intended, on one hand, to show God's restraint of sin. In other words, the law helps us to understand the boundaries for good and evil so that we might avoid sin. Number two, the law is intended to show God's condemnation of the sinner. As we sin, well, the law then testifies against us, showing us how, the, how we have sinned, how we have broken the law. Before we come to Christ, we're condemned by the law. We look at the law and we realize that we're guilty before God. And then we look at, at Jesus, who, who kept the law of God perfectly, and we see that, that He is righteous before God. And, and then when we cry out, I, I need you, Jesus, we're saved. So Jesus, the law keeper, has paid the penalty for Daniel, the law breaker. The law doesn't save you. It points you to Christ, and Christ saves. Finally, the law is meant to show God's will for the saved. We as followers of Jesus Christ want to honor Him, right? And God's moral law, and in some ways His ceremonial law, reveals His character and shows us how to love God and to love our neighbors. And as believers, we have the desire and the power through the Holy Spirit to obey then what God says. So Paul... Well, Paul's telling Timothy to use the law rightly. So which of these three ways is Paul, is Paul thinking when he, when he says this, right? Well, he seems to be referring to the first way, the, the restraining function of the law. Paul points to the law's role in, in curbing sin in the lives of unbelievers. That's why he says in verse 9 that the law isn't for the righteous, but for the lawless and rebellious. Paul also mentions two benefits of a rightful use of the law. The first being that, that it produces responsibility among those who teach. Those who, who teach, well, they have a responsibility, a, a stewardship to guard the gospel. Secondly, a, a right preaching of the law that, that leads law-breaking sinners to the, to the gospel produces love among those who hear. Verse 5 says, 
But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And, and this is what we all want, right? We want to love God and love others out of an overflow of a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul tells us that, that the only that Paul tells us only the gospel produces this kind of response. Moving on, verse twelve. I think Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which is found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that me, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be, glor- be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So, so we're to guard the gospel, right? We're, we're to guard the gospel. Well, we should also be celebrating the gospel. And these verses, well, well Paul starts off, he, he starts giving his own testimony which then leads to words of praise, right? In the midst of, of all of this, Paul actually gives, one of, gives us one of the most clear and compelling descriptions, descriptions of the gospel in all the scriptures. Verse 15, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is where we learn about the gospel. This is where we learn about the grace of God and the glory of God. We learn, we learn that Jesus came into the world. In other words, the, gos- the gospel of God it is incarnational and undeniable. Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God, didn't, didn't first come into being in Bethlehem. No, no he already existed as the second person of the Trinity, the, the pre-existent, eternal Son of God, who, who was there with, with the Father and the Spirit before the foundation of the world. And, and Jesus performed the ultimate act of condescending grace by, by coming into the world as a baby born in Bethlehem. But, but why? Why did Jesus come? Well, well Jesus came to live a life that we could not, to die a death that, that we deserved, and then to rise into victory over the enemies that we could not conquer, sin and death. This is not like the myths that the false teachers were spreading back in verse 4, but this is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The, the gospel of God is universal and it's personal. 
we know that, that Jesus came to save sinners, but, but which sinners? All, all sinners that would embrace this gospel fully. I mean, that, that, that's what Paul is saying in verse 16, isn't it? That, that he was at the top of the list of sinners. That, that's why this gospel is both universal and personal. It, it causes Paul to celebrate the grace of God, which he said overflowed from him back in verse 14. I mean, Paul went from being the greatest threat to the church, from even overseeing the persecution of Stephen in Acts 8 verse 1, and arresting and imprisoning and killing Christians, to, to meeting Jesus on the road, and, and God caused His grace to overflow to the one person who seemingly deserved it the least. We learn a lot about the grace of God in, in verse 13. The, the grace of God is unconditional. There was nothing in Paul to draw, to draw God to himself. Paul's salvation originated in God and God alone. And, and that rings true for you and me as well, right? We're not saved by any condition in us. We're saved only by the account of sovereign grace in God. Verse 14 says this, And the grace of our Lord, who was more than abundant with, with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus, we see that we see here that God's that God's grace is purposeful. We see it as it produced faith and love in Paul's life, but but it's deeper than that too, right? It demonstrates God's patience. Have you ever thought, well, God would never save me? I've hated Him. I've even turned against Him. But, but no one is beyond the mercy of God. God chose to take the chief prosecutor of the church and make him the chief missionary of the church. Why? Well, so that, that God could show that he's patient, that he's loving. He calls sinners to believe in him for eternal life. No, no matter who you are or what you've done, these words are, are worthy of, of full acceptance, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Let's pick it back up. In verse 18, it says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Paul gives Timothy one final exhortation here. Fight for the gospel. So to make this point, will Paul use Hymenaeus and Alexander who we know were among the false teachers in Ephesus and men that strayed from the gospel. And many commentators even believe that these two men 
were actually elders in the church. No one's immune to the temptation to wander from the gospel. That's why Paul says that we must fight for the gospel. And that fight is carried out in two ways. The first, we must fight for the gospel in our lives. This is a spirit, there is a spiritual battle raging all around us. That the devil and his followers want to entice you with deception and lead you into division because they don't want the gospel to resound in and around your life. The, the battle looks differently in each of our lives, but, but don't be caught off guard. Fight the good fight and stand strong amid, amid all the challenges that come from outside and inside the church. Like Paul says in verse, five, in verse 19, keep faith and good conscience. Secondly, well, we must fight for the gospel in our churches. Paul says in verse 20 that, that he has handed Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan. This more than likely means excommunication from the church, which can be read more about in 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18. But these, these men were cast out of the church to show that they were separated from Christ. Not out of anger or hatred, but with the hope and prayer that they would realize their error and return to Christ. So we must cling to the gospel. It's the only thing that unites the church, and it's the only thing that will sustain God's people in difficult days. This is a gospel worth guarding and defending, and it's a gospel worth celebrating. Let's, let's, let's pray. Father God, thank you for the words that you've given us that, that teach us about you, that reveal you to us in, in new ways. I pray that we would, we would listen to them, that we would receive them. They wouldn't just fall on deaf ears, but that, that we would study your word, that, that it would grow our faith in you. I just pray that as we go out from here, that we would continue to have these words on our heart, that we would continue to seek you in all the things that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.